The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Hello, you spectacular people. This is our Christmas special for 2016. It's an edited version of our live stream from Christmas Eve, where we shared some listener flash fiction and some other scary stories and poems. For some reason, with the recording, you're going to hear some hiccups throughout it, where I don't know why, but the audio just kind of reverberates or repeats itself a little bit. There's not a ton of it, but there is some, so I just wanted to forewarn you, and it may be irritating to some of you, but I'm not sure exactly what happened, and there was no way for me to edit those pieces out without having to take out huge chunks of stuff that would be parts of stories and things. So please bear with the Krampus that managed to get into the middle of this episode. And from History Goes Bump, Merry Christmas. Can you see me now? <laughs> Welcome to our back lanai. Merry Christmas, everybody. You can probably hear the fire crackling. And actually, you might not be able to hear it because it is kind of in the distance, but the Magic Kingdom fireworks just started going because go, go, I can hear some booming behind us. Either that or we're in the middle of a war zone. So anyway, uh, hello, you spectacular people. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And welcome to our Christmas special 2016. We're going to share some scary stories with you, keeping with the traditions of old. And we're doing it with just one mic, so we're going to pass it back and forth. But we wanted to get the best audio possible, and we thought this would be better than just on the camera mic. So, 
And for those of you who are going to be listening to this in the podcast, you won't be seeing the picture, obviously, but we've got a cute little tree behind us here that Denise decorated. It's special. And boy, she's really building a heck of a fire. <laughs> I'm hoping the smoke doesn't blow this direction. Oh, now I got a fire. She made fire. <laughs> All right. I thought I would start with a little poem first. Okay. I have to get my reading glasses on. Here, you take the mic for a minute. Hello, everybody. What we have tonight, I have a little poem, and I think it's five of our flash fiction stories that were runners up to the anniversary special contest that we had done. So we saved five of them to do tonight instead of doing them for the anniversary special. But this poem I wanted to share, it's Christmas Eve, so a lot of people like to read The Night Before Christmas. Well, there's a blog that's called Obsessed with Skulls, and they wrote a scary version of The Night Before Christmas called, of course, the nightmare before Christmas. Denise is going to hold the flashlight for me so I could see what I'm doing. It's a zombie. I'm sitting next to a zombie. Twas the nightmare before Christmas and in the graveyard. Not a zombie was stirring and the front gate was barred. Severed legs were a hanging. Not a crypt was left bare in hopes that school Santa soon would be there. Zombie children were nestled all snug in their tombs while overhead witches flew round on their brooms. Mama Zombie with death shroud and I in my cap had just settled our skulls for a long winter's nap. When out by the tombstones there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my coffin to see what was the matter. Up out of my grave I flew like a bat and startled poor Percy, our ancient black cat. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of death to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear, but a miniature sleigh, an eight skeletal reindeer. With a bony old driver aglow with arcana, I knew in a moment it must be Skull Santa. More rapid than death, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now slasher, now cancer, now pantser and fatigue. On coma, on putrid, on Donner Party and Blitzkrieg. To the top of the mausoleum, to the top of the wall. Now stash away, slash away, slash away all. As dry leaves before the wild hurricane lie, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the mausoleum, the coursers they flew, and the sleigh full of skulls, and Skull Santa too. And then, much like thunder, I heard on the roof the clinking and clanking of each skeletal hoof. As I drew in my skull and was turning around, down the chimney school Santa came with a bound. He was dressed in black leather from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with grave ash and soot. A bundle of skulls he had flung on his back, and he looked like a demon prepared to attack. His eye sockets were hollow, his skull like a bowl, his cheekbones were sharp, and his nose just a hole. His draw little mouth was drawn up in a grin, and a beard on his jaw did conceal his chin. He was skinny and bony, a damned scary sight, and when first I saw him I shivered with fright. A red glow in his eye and a clicking of teeth, like cold hands of death reaching up from beneath. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work. Skulls and bones he laid out, then turned with a jerk. A long bony finger he pointed at me, 
and cackling madly rose up the chimney. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Scary Christmas to all, and to all a good fright. That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> I love that one. So that was from Obsessed with Skulls. It's a really cool blog, especially if you're into skulls. All right. Do we have anybody else hanging out here in the chat room with us? Hey, Emily, how are you? Well, do you want to read this one, Denise? Sure. And this one is by Mark Shoemaker. Not all who remain. Maine pulled his cap down tight, embracing against the wind and drizzle, thankful for the gloomy weather. This was his favorite spot on the battlefield, the place where he most felt at peace. But Gettysburg could be crowded in October, and Little Round Top would be crawling with tourists on most days. Few had braved the cold and the rain this morning, though, so he was able to stand in the quiet, look out over Devil's Den, and feel himself slip back into the mist. Not many of us out today. That's the way I like it. Maine hadn't realized he was no longer alone. He turned to his left and saw a tall man with a gray-brown hair wrapped in a charcoal pea coat. Yeah, he answered, it's peaceful out here when no one's around. Kind of funny when you think about where we are. The man took a step toward Maine and extended his hand. Shane Trevner, he said as they shook. Carper Maine from Columbus, where are you from? Here, he said quietly, as if the word were a prayer. Yes, this place is peaceful, if you can block out the sound of gunfire. You know what's really weird is Denise is reading this about Gettysburg and gunfire. As I said, the Magic Kingdom fireworks are going off in the background, so it sounds like we're near a battlefield. It's like boom, 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 boom. I thought she was laughing at my way I read. No. Oh, hey. Hey, Faye. I know what you mean. The spirit of this place is overwhelming. Sometimes I think that if you blindfolded me, brought me here, and stood me on the hill, I'd know exactly where I was. You're likely right. Maine thought that he heard a New England drawl in the man's voice that didn't sound quite right. He had to be a transplant. Tell me, Trevner said, what do you think of ghosts? Maine smiled. I've seen the shirts that say there are no ghosts in Gettysburg, and I understand. You can't let what really happened here get lost in all the imagined stories. You have to remember the sacrifice, the death, but still, it can be hard not to believe when you're here. Yes, that's it exactly. So, if you saw a ghost, would you believe? Maine cocked his head and frowned. I don't know. People see reenactors sometimes and pretend they're the real thing, and they take pictures of mist and dust and believe they see spirits. It would take some convincing. The man looked directly at Maine, and as soon as he saw the intense dissolution in his companion's pale blue eyes, he knew what would come next. What if I told you I was a ghost? Maine suppressed a laugh. To begin with, I'd wonder why a Civil War soldier wore a striped polo shirt and jeans. I mean, the coat looks real, but the rest? Trevner smiled knowingly. You assume I am the ghost of a soldier. Not all who remain here are from the battle. Okay, then, Maine answered. Who are you a ghost of? I'm a tourist, that's all. A tourist who died while you were here? Oh, no, I died in a wreck on the Massachusetts Turnpike. I am here because this is where I chose to be. I'm a tourist in death, as in life. 
not all who remain here die here. Okay, Maine said, no longer trying not to laugh. So what would it take to convince you? Maine jumped when he heard the voice. Trevner now stood on his right. How'd you do that? All is here, all is now. Those words were whispered in Maine's ear, but Trevner now appeared in the distance. Beside where the statue of Governor Warren stood on a boulder, binoculars in hand, looking out over the battlefield. Then Trevner was back at Maine's side. I, I believe you. Yes, your only other choice would be to deny your sanity. The jury's out on that. Trevner laughed now. If only you could see how many of us are here, you would be less skeptical about the stories. If you could walk through the wheat field, hear the cries of the dying, and see the hands reaching up from the ground, or experience the brutal killing in the darkness of Culp's Hill every night. There are so many places, so many stories. What about Pickett's charge? Trevner shook his head. There is too much confusion. All that remains is a swirling panic, a vain attempt at retreat, a realization that all is lost. He paused. You know the story of General Sickles, I suppose. Yes, refused to follow orders, moved his men forward, and they were routed and he lost his leg. This gets replayed, I assume. No, Sickles gloried too much in the loss of his leg. Every night he relives the consequence of his rashness. He charges forward as a soldier on the first Minnesota, advancing to fill the hole his men left in the line. And every night he feels a mini-ball bury itself into his chest, falls to the ground, and then just as peace surrounds him, rises to charge into torment again. Sickles didn't die here, yet this is where he's forced to spend eternity. Some of us are here by choice, others by compulsion. Maine swallowed the knot that had risen to his throat and looked down. Sickles had been a scoundrel even before the war, but to deserve such a fate? I wish I could see such things, he said, his voice shaking. If only I could witness the three days that made this place sacred. You can. That's why I'm here. Maine looked up. You mean to kill me? No, not all who remain are dead. He motioned with his hand, and the air around him separated from itself with a low, ripping sound. A stone path emerged beneath Maine's feet, disappearing just the other side of the tear. Step through, if you wish. Maine took a deep breath and paused, feeling the rain blowing in his face. He relaxed his body and took in the atmosphere that made the spirit of this place so palpable. And he stepped forward. I think if a ghost was inviting me to step forward into the Gettysburg battlefield, I would say, no, thank you. <laughs> we need you to throw some more logs on the fire there, Denise. All right. Who else do we got in here? We got April. Hey, April, how are you doing? Merry Christmas. We've got uh, Kimberly's in here. Josh, how you doing, Josh? Say hi to the family and Merry Christmas to all them. Good to see all you guys. Faye's saying the fireworks are really loud tonight. They are, so I'm surprised people aren't hearing them. Does everybody have their eggnog and all that good stuff? We didn't bring our eggnog out here. We should have done that. All right, so this next story I have is called Haunted House, and it's by Kathy Webb Thomas. And she said that this story was inspired by her and her husband's many visits to St. Augustine. I think they've gone there more than we have. They live here in Florida, so it's another one of their favorite spots to check out. The year was 1899, and the little town by the river sat quietly awaiting the morning sun. Suddenly a scream shattered the serenity of the morning. 
Anyone and everyone within shouting distance came running in the direction of that eerie wake-up call. As people made their way towards the direction of the screams, they were confronted by a gruesome and heart-wrenching sight. A woman's body lay crumpled on the walkway to a beautiful Victorian mansion. Obviously, it was too late as some of the neighbors tried in vain to see if they could help her. Her neck was broken. She had fallen from the third-floor balcony of the home. Or at least they thought she'd fallen. As men and women frantically sought out a someone in authority to help with the situation, another disturbing incident was happening in front of all remained in front of the house. Men could be heard arguing and fiercely fighting. Then a gunshot echoed through the air, and then another. Then silence engulfed the whole area as the shocking situation was beginning to be understood by the witnesses. The home belonged to a captain who had just returned home from a very long time at sea. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we know where this is going. He had married a much younger woman, and in an effort to keep her faithful to him, he locked her up in her own living quarters on the third floor, and he hired a housekeeper to be her quote-unquote jailer while he was away. The housekeeper's son worked at the home too, and he convinced his mother to allow the girl some freedom. He would keep an eye on her, he promised his mom. He was a handsome 20-something, and soon the rumors started up about the captain's wife and her keeper's son. And unfortunately, when the captain returned, he heard the rumor too. That is what led to the death of all in the home. Once the authorities arrived on the scene, they made their way into the home and found the lifeless bodies of the housekeeper, her son, and the captain, and they were all in pools of their own blood. A few days later, after the burials of all that lost their lives, that day a decision was made to simply lock the house up, board the windows, and seal it in its own history, and a few other things. Now we move forward to the current day. The newly licensed real estate agent had agreed to a challenge from a broker. Sell the captain's house. He had acquired it for a steal and he was ready to get rid of it. For the last week he had a handyman prepping the home for sale. They were shocked to see that the home was completely furnished with beautiful Victorian era furnishings. The broker wanted to sell the furniture separately from the home But for viewing purposes, he opted to leave it and only removing the personal effects. Those were boxed up so they could be sorted through later. After all, you never know what treasures may be in there, and you don't want to throw any of it away just yet, he had said. While the handyman was there working, he heard the occasional odd sound in the home, but he chalked that up to settling. It was an old house, he told himself, but that didn't explain the fear he felt with every workday, and soon his job was quickly done. Goodbye, Captain, he said as he left for the final time. At that moment, he felt himself being shoved out the front door and having the door slam in his face. I guess the captain was saying goodbye. The day for the open house had arrived. The agent arrived early so that she could explore the home. She placed the key in the lock, and as if by magic, the door opened. She stepped inside and gasped. I can't believe that someone would abandon this home. Then the door locked itself behind her. Moving from room to room, turning on lights, she felt a cool breeze pass by her, but there were no windows open. Then she felt the sensation of walking through cobwebs. Dismissing this as just her act of imagination, she methodically went to each floor, turning on key lights. Suddenly she saw movement in the stairwell on the third floor. She definitely was not alone. She headed downstairs, swallowing her fear, telling herself it was just someone being nosy. But she knew the doors were all locked. I'm sorry, the open house doesn't start for another hour.
she called out towards the entryway. Then she heard a thud coming from the back of the house. Now she was a bit concerned, saying, Hello, I'd really appreciate it if you would come back in an hour, she said as she made her way downstairs. She saw something laying in the kitchen floor and a wet substance surrounding it. Her heart started pounding as she made her way towards the large lump on the floor. She was startled by a loud, blood-curdling scream. Denise, can you give us some sound effects? <laughs> no, because the neighbors would probably come running, except for Faye, because she knows what was happening, and they'd be calling the fire department. We don't need any more sirens and helicopters around here tonight. <laughs> this can't be happening, she thought. What is happening? That was the question she didn't have a chance to answer before she heard men's voices. One angry, one pleading, and then two explosive sounds. Smartphone in hand, she dialed her broker, but there was no signal. I have to get out of here, she thought, but she froze. Her heart was racing, and before her eyes, an apparition of an angry man appeared. A loud, piercing scream drew the attention of passers-by. They were trying to open the door. The ghost came closer to her, putting pressure on her neck. Her world went black. The house has been boarded up again. And now it has one more little extra feature. What do you think that is, Denise? I wonder what the ghost of a real estate agent looks like. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a story from Kathy. Um, Heather, there won't be any... In interpretive dancing tonight but but thank you for uh, putting that out there for us so to explain to everybody we have our virtual meetings with executive producers and there is this legend of the spider that goes with the decor of a christmas tree and it came about during the victorian era and there was a spider that spun a web around the tree for this poor family who didn't have any decorations for the tree. And overnight, the cobweb turned to silver and gold tinsel. Well, I decided to make the story creepy to go with our blog because we were trying to do the 25 creepy days of Christmas. And so I was reading the rewrite that I had done to the executive producers. And behind me, wait, wait. Denise started wait, doing wait, this wait, interpretive... Wait, wait. First, she wanted me to tell the original story, but I knew she was going to write read the extended story. So I just briefly gave a synopsis of what the story was. But she goes, oh, you're supposed to tell it. Da, 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 da. So she was giving me a hard time for not really embellishing the story a little bit more. So when she read her creepy story, she really embellished it. <laughs> so, yeah, she was doing interpretive dance with the story. It's, this is written by Apophenia, and I think it's called Eve. Would you like to read it? Oh, look at she's got the baby on her lap. Isn't she sweet? Maybe you're about to listen to this in a darkly lit room right before you drift off to bed. If so, please remember what the light is, because you only truly can miss something when it is absent. The impending darkness reminds us of how long far away light can be. None further away are the safe feelings of light than just after sunset. The sky is colored with a muted orange light. The dense force grows increasingly darker. With tangled density, it feels claustrophobic. Just as the beach gives away to the ocean, the force way to the beach, a short distance of large smooth stones. 
The scene is remarkable stillness, which is only broken by stilly iron water barely lapping on the shore. And the woman. The woman stands on the beach. Her bare feet wrap around the stones underneath her. A white nightgown effortlessly flows with her as she walks. She doesn't mind. She is happy, happy to be free of her house, of her bed. She has finally recovered from her surgery and able to live again. Curiosity moves her. Further down the beach, nearer to the forest than to the ocean, stands a corrugated metal shack. It has a roof made from rust-colored bundles of sticks or maybe wire. There never was a door. It is barren and dark inside. It has no secrets, but that does not, not prevent prying eyes from peering in. A lone raven occupies itself by preening on top of the shack's roof. In the, fla in the failing light and with a mild interest, she can make out thin plaques of metal peeling off to expose the rust of the structure. The smell of decaying metal is strong. You could taste it. It reminds her of... The raven notices the woman and begins intensely staring. Their eyes lock. The raven caws. A deep concussive renaissance emanates from the raven rippling reality, like a raindrop on the surface of water, but not a sound. The raven spreads its wings, lifts its head, and caws as it takes flight. Again, silence. The leaves on the trees begin to shiver. An oppressing number of ravens start to burst out, making no sound with the number and intensity of a regrettably kicked up hornet's nest. Eight, thirteen, twenty-two, forming an unkindness, the ravens keep coming. More and more are pouring into the sky. Fifty-five, seventy-five, one hundred and thirty-two. The woman backs up, her face affixed towards the ravens as she stumbles into the sea. Her nightgown soaks heavy with water, clinging to her exposed clinging to her, exposing her form, weighing her down. 209, 341, too many to count. The birds begin to circle above head. Constantly from the forest they come, as if every leaf is a raven. They circle, darkening the sky with their masses. Only a bead of light shines in the middle of them, like a setting sun shrieking with the increase of the ravens. The water is waist-deep. She weakly struggles to tread water, the ravens are still coming. The unkindness shadow colors the deep water a deep liver. Now it is neck deep. The shore is so far away, and the ravens are darkening the sky. Closing the iris, the ravens cut off the last rays of light. Their metallic beaks glint in the light's absence. The water is lapping against the woman's eyes and mouth. She sputters as the water envelopes her, gazing up through the water at flooding into her mouth. It tastes metallic. It's warm and thick. But why is it so warm? The tips of her fingers itch. She is encapsulated in the water. The unkindness glass eyes glisten when the last rays of light is shut out by the rising bodies. It is truly black. She is fully conscious of thick warm fluid coursing down her throat. Fully conscious she is drowning. The muffled sound of her heart pounding in her head. The woman sharply gasps a long, cold intake of air through her nose with great effort, as such to reanimate herself. Heart rapidly beating, the woman opens her eyes. The room is dark except for a pale street lamp that casts sepia light through the slats of the blinds onto her bed, in her home. She is propped upright with a considerable number of pillows to help with the recovery. The air felt freezing cold in her chest, but why does she feel like she's still drowning? The hot liquid pours down her throat of the woman. 
She heaves its metallic taste, fills her mouth, and flows into her hand. All but three drops are caught. They fall to the sheets, blacken the sepia light, blood. And um, a fact here is that a group of ravens is called an unkindness. It's a weird name for ravens, but they always have weird names for those grouping of animals and such. Faye's asking if we saw the shining light out back. This one is from Shelby Labrie. And Shelby actually, she wrote two essays for the contest and her essay was the one who won the other one. This one was a runner-up. The pre-dawn light glinted off the frost-bitten sea of grass as long, slim fingers of fog curled and crept their way out from the shadows of the forest. It was a living blanket of white that was quickly gaining speed across the field in her direction. She knew it was hiding. It was there, in the dense white abyss. Her eyes darted to and fro, trying to pick out the slightest darkened shape attempting to conceal itself within. Scanning and finding nothing but blank white space, the cadence of her heartbeat skipped and fell into a frantic, rapid dance. She pulled the cold, dew-soaked air into her lungs as she labored to breathe. She had run so fast down the path and out onto the field, out into the open where she would be able to see that which hunted her. Yet here she was, staring into this strange mist that tormented her and kept hidden its secrets. Her lungs ached as she struggled to calm her breathing and her wild, racing heart. She could hear nothing above the sharp, shallow intakes of air and the blood rushing through her ears. It's in there, waiting. She could feel its presence, lurking, waiting, stalking, and biding its time to strike. There. She saw movement, just to the left. The fog swirled at the now absent shape the void it left in its wake. She must run. She turned to flee one last glance at the fog, and still it pushed forward, engulfing the safety of the silvery field between them. She must get home. The house was only just through the next aisle of trees. She thought briefly of going around and scanned the far edges of the outward crop of pines. She squinted in the diminished light, fighting to see the edges of her salvation. No, it can't be. Her heart leapt once again. The fog's snaking fingers had raced along the outer edge of the field and were now taking grasp of the outcrop of trees that led home into her refuge. Hurry! Her mind screamed. She knew in her soul she should make it to those pines and out the other side. Her life depended on it. She felt her hair raise on her arms as the onslaught of hold pushed down past her goose-fleshed skin. She watched a thin, ghostly arm reach for her sneaker. She felt the terror travel up her belly and rush through her heart. She muffled her scream as she kicked off the clinging wisp, breaking it apart, swirling it into multiples of its own thicker self. She turned and ran, glancing over her shoulder at the pursuing fog. She prayed for the sun to break out over the tree line and set the world ablaze, burning off that which concealed the evil that lurked within. Her lungs and legs hurt, but the path was just ahead. She could see it now the small, thinnest amount of light cutting its way through the dark and terrors of the night. And the fog pushed on, closing in from the sides, racing to get that silver of hope before she did. She felt its presence on her back, icy nails sliding down her neck. She caught movement on her right. It's there, just beyond the curtain of white. It's going to beat me to the path. 
Her breath hitched as her heart screamed in her chest and she struggled not to cry out. The thump, thump, thump of her footfalls bounced off the wall of fog surrounding her and echoed back to her, sounding as if her pursuer was keeping pace and yet all around her. Just a couple more yards. The dimly illuminated path was within her grasp. She pushed on harder, telling her aching muscles they could rest once they were safe. The fog's fingers were at the path's edge now. The body of the fog seemed to still be at bay as the fingers danced into and then curled away from the lighted path. She watched as the fog swirled with aggression and pushed to get into the path only to be held back by some unseen force. Movement again. Just inside the black shadows of the tree, the fog bounced once more off the unseen wall and spilled down the side of the path, swallowing the trunks on either side in a river of white. She hit the path, ducking low, hanging branches and racing the fog to the exit. There was no sounds except her pounding footsteps and the blood rushing through her body. She felt the frustration and malice pushing at her from inside the cover of fog. Movement. To her right. Keeping pace with her. Waiting to strike. There it was. The house. Within sight, she could make it. Bursting out of the trees. Racing onward over the slippery grass towards the sanctuary. The fog raced beside her, closing in on her. It played in her hair and twined between her feet. And still she pushed forward. It reached the railing of her back steps before she did, but she did not falter as she leapt with all her strength and bound onto the landing. The ghostly pale air has her now. She can't find her doorknob. She starts to sob as she wildly feels for the handle. The bottom step creaks with the weight of her hunter. Another creak and crack from the step just below her. Hot air brushes her cheek and she drops to her knees to get away. Tears streak her face as she blindly still searches for the last chance at escape. Her fingers brush against the cold stainless steel knob. Her sob catches in her throat as she twists the knob and throws her shoulder against the door. She falls through the door, sprawling out on the floor, and frantically clawing the rest of the way inside. Feet kicking, she slams the door shut with her foot and quickly scoots back to lock it. She holds her breath, listening, silently thanking the heavens she made it to safety. The outside world is silent. She wishes she could stop her heartbeat, if only to hear over it for a few seconds. The clock ticks on the wall, slow and rhythmic, snick, 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 and still she holds her breath. She knows the monster's out there waiting. The tiniest movement will draw its attention. After what felt like an eternity, a warm ray of sun slides onto her hardwood floor. She finally releases the breath she's been holding. From out on the deck, she hears the wood groan. And as the warmth of the sun stretches to reach her sneakers, she knows she is safe from the terror that had stalked her. She stands up and stretches, eyes scanning the rapidly retreating fog. She believes she is safe in the daylight. It is the lie she tells herself daily. And though the light of the dawn is her sanctuary, she will never be safe from the biggest monster of all. The one that stalks her in the night. The one that reaches out for her just out of sight. The one that watches her while she sleeps, and the one that will eventually catch her, her imagination. That's the problem with most people who are haunted. An active imagination. It will get you every time. Either that or Victoria. Hello, this is Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes, and I run the lift. 
It's a very busy time of year, and there's lots to do. But someone out there, you know who you are, asked me to say hello. Naughty. So hello and Merry Christmas to everyone who listens to The Lift and History Goes Bump. We hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Now, I'm off to visit some old man named Scrooge, who is going to have quite a surprise when he rides my lift. <laughs> Tempting the spirits, especially at Christmas, is not a good idea. It tends to make them rather angry. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? She watches you while you sleep. Yes, and those people who tempt the spirits. <laughs> I don't think this poor girl was tempting anything. Sounds like she was out having herself a little walk. Guess she better not be walking in the fog. You must be getting a weird reflection from something. Look, I have an orb. You do look like you have an orb on your forehead. It must be the flashlight reflecting off of my computer. That's what it is. Yeah, I saw what you did. Ooh, look at what it does. Hey, look, it's a ghost right there. But see what it's doing with the smoke? <laughs> Look, there's a ghost in front of you, Denise. Watch. Let me see if it does. Look. Look, there's a ghost. <laughs> oh, see, a flashlight can make a ghost. Woo. See, the smoke is blowing too far. There it is. There's the ghost. Woo. Boo. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> Tiana wants to talk. Oh, she kissed the microphone for you guys. Denise is our master fire maker. Woohoo. So are you guys going to be watching a Christmas story as it runs for 24 hours? I already watched one hour of it before we came out here. I just love that show. It's so nostalgic, even though I didn't really grow up during the... I think it's supposed to be during the 50s. All right. Well, you lost your seat. Apparently Tiana's taken over. This is Harry by Leslie Pollock. Harry looked at the people gathered in the room. He knew that they were there to hear from him, to know what he knew. Doubt filled him. What could I tell them? What did I really know? There was Bess, his beautiful Bess, so close. Oh, how he wished to comfort her. They had made an agreement, and she was following through on her part. Who else had she brought together for the special event? Did she find the real thing? Not a Charlton like those they exposed over the years. Maybe she was going to do it herself. He would wait and see. There are seven people taking their seats. It will start soon. Harry continued to watch as Bess lit the candle in the middle of the table. He could hear her ask everyone to hold hands. The time had come. He would speak to them and they would know the truth. I think so. Are you sure you want to do this? A voice came from behind him. Why shouldn't I, he said to the figure who joined him. What do you think it will do to her, the figure responded. I don't understand. It should make her happy to hear from me, to know I can do it. It is what we planned so long ago, Harry spoke with assurance. And of her, what will become of her once you've made yourself known? How is she to go on with her life? The voice from behind him added, Is she still your wife, or is she your widow? Harry was baffled by this comment. She was his wife. She would always be his wife. He looked back at her sitting at the table with all the others. His love for her filled him. How can she go on with life if she knows you're here? 
that she can speak to you. He didn't like where this conversation was going. Harry, are you here with us? Bess called out to him. Now was the time, time to let her know he was here. Harry moved closer to the table, seeing all who had gathered. He'd been so focused on Bess, he hadn't noticed his brother Dash was there also. Harry, are you with us? We've gathered like we discussed. It has been one year since you left us. Don't do it, Eric. Let her go. Let her go on with life, his companion pleaded. She could live for decades. She has a chance to even find love again. Harry didn't like the thought of Bess being alone, but he also didn't like the thought of her with someone else. What should I do? Am I supposed to be here? They had a code to prove it was him. Oh, Bess, what would be best for you? Did we really think this out? Was it just my ego that made me feel I should do this? Was I being selfish? What was the future to bring? They had said ten years they would try this. He could wait, maybe. If I don't speak to her this time, can I come back next year? Harry inquired. That will be up to you, answered his companion. You are not much help here. I knew what I was here to do, and now I have doubts of the wisdom of this whole plan. Frustration filled him. Looking to Bess, could he let her go? Watch her go on with life without him? She'd been a year without him. She seemed well. A year? Had it really been a year? Thinking back, what had he done in a year? He was aware of time passing, yet he was now aware that it passes differently on this side of the veil. Why had he not noticed before? We could call upon the forces that be. Please let Harry Houdini talk with us, Bess's voice rang out. Hearing her voice gave him a feeling of warmth and pleasure. Dash's voice now calls out, Eric Weiss, are you here? Can you speak with us? Try moving something. From his pocket, he pulled a pair of handcuffs and laid them near the candle in the middle of the table. They were one of the many pairs that Harry had practiced with to be sure his skills were always at their best. His life did depend upon it. Everyone, please concentrate, Dash asked those at the table. Move the handcuffs. Show us that it is you, Jeff. Nah. Move the handcuffs. Show that it is you, Dash continued. He could move them. He was sure he could even though he had never tried to move anything since he had been on this side of the veil. Why had he not tried again, he thought of the past year? Time really did work differently, not only time, but your sense of being. That is the best way he could describe it to himself. This time here, in this house, with these people, is the closest to what it was like to be alive. Bess, I think we should stop. He is not coming. Bess turned her sad eyes to Dash. We could try again later tonight if you want, Dash added. Just a little while longer, Bess whispered as she clutched Dash's hand in a bit tighter. Harry felt that he had to make himself known now before they gave up trying to reach him. He extended his hand out to the handcuffs on the table. Don't, Eric. Leave the living with the living. It is best that way. He'd almost forgotten about the companion. He turned to look to see who this was, who seems determined to keep him from what he came to do. Mother! Joy and confusion entered Harry. Why have you come to me now? I have been with you from the moment you passed to this realm. You were not ready to see me. Eric, you have been too connected to the living. Let the living be. Do not let your desire for fame follow you here, she pleaded. If I had come to you when you had tried to reach out to me, would that have changed your life? Would you have achieved all you did? Harry looked at his mother. What of Bess? I made a promise to her. She will understand it is for the best when she joins you. 
Harry started to speak, but his mother added quickly, Time does not matter anymore. As you know already, it does not pass here as it does for the living. Without even realizing it, Harry had let go of his connection with the living. He felt connected to much more now. At times he thought he heard his name called, but it was faint. Then he felt her. Bess was here. He would be with her again. There was new mysteries for them to discover together. Well, I thought that that was really creative of Leslie to kind of give us a picture of what was going on on the other side of the veil when it comes to Harry Houdini. Because as most people who know that story on Halloween night, which is the day that Harry Houdini died, his wife would hold these seances and she did it for 10 years. And he said, if anybody can contact from the other side, if there's really this thing called ghosts and mediums can connect with them... I'll prove it to you because I will come back when you hold those seances. They had this key word that only the two of them knew so that when he came back, she would know for sure it was him and not one of these mediums that was a fraud trying to fool her. And he never did show up at any of these seances. But uh, now we know why. It's his mother's fault. That's why he never said anything to Bess. He wanted to. Did we have anybody new join us here? Oh, Sasha's here. Hey, wonderful. We got all kinds of people hanging out. Nine people in here? I think that's the most we've ever had for any hangout that we've done. And then April shared that she has on her History Goes Bump shirt. That's awesome. Thanks for wearing that. But that it does not match her polar bear bottom. So those were our five flash fiction contest runner-ups. And then I found... This story called The Christmas Specter of Clarence Street that I wanted to share with everybody. Hey, Aaron, how are you? It's like old home week in the chat room. Humphrey Brook, a 50-year-old, well-respected physician and lifelong bachelor, was not what most would find physically appealing. He was shorter than average and his extremely stooped shoulders didn't help. At the end of his long, crooked nose sat a pair of spectacles. And to add to these, he was asthmatic and quite socially awkward. And let me just say, asthma is not necessarily a negative because I know maybe somebody who's a little asthmatic. No, I am socially awkward too, and asthmatic, but I don't think I have stooped shoulders. Dr. Brooke was the opposite of 20-year-old Felicia Clayton. Felicia was the belle of Liverpool, a stunningly beautiful, kind, and charming young daughter of a wealthy shipping magnet. It could be said that Felicia was the Scarlet O'Hare of Liverpool. She could have the heart of any man and was inundated with love letters, gentlemen suitors, and proposals for marriage. The pair first met at a funeral when Dr. Brooke was introduced to Felicia. He was overwhelmed by her beauty and kissed her hand. He stared at her during the rest of the funeral and she responded by smiling at him a couple times. Look, if somebody's staring at me at the whole time at a funeral, he's got to be a creepster. <laughs> Wouldn't you feel weird if somebody was staring at you through a whole funeral? I might not even notice it. Dr. Brooke caught sight of Felicia around town a couple times after this. Once when she was coming out of a carriage, and again as she walked down the street with a suitor. This second time, while in a suitor's company, she saw Dr. Brooke and waved to him. But not only did she wave, she looked back over her shoulder twice to smile at him. 
The suitor became jealous and reprimanded her. Dr. Brooks' infatuation with Felicia was now at its peak. He hurried home and began to keep a journal of his feelings for her and detailing in it his plans to win her heart. When the Christmas season came around and Dr. Brooke received an invitation to a lavish Christmas Eve ball, which would be tonight, he took the opportunity and lovingly crafted a letter to his beloved Felicia, asking her to attend the ball with him. She accepted. Some days later, a friend of Dr. Brooke's well-known womanizer, Charles Wilson, came to visit him. During their visit, Wilson asked if Dr. Brooke had any plans for Christmas Eve as he wanted company at a local pub for that evening. He was certain his awkward and unattractive companion would be alone, as usual. To his surprise, Dr. Brooke informed him that he did indeed have plans, ones that involved the most sought-after woman in the city. Wilson was not only shocked, but also very jealous. He, too, had tried his charms on Felicia to no avail. Wilson expressed his disbelief and was trying to talk Dr. Brooke out of what he called his fantasies when a woman burst in informing the doctor of a medical emergency and it necessitated his immediate attention. On the way out the door, Dr. Brooke produced Felicia's letter of acceptance to the ball and handed it to Wilson. Angry and more jealous than ever, Wilson started going through Dr. Brooke's belongings and discovered the journal wherein his friend had disclosed all his feelings, hopes, and dreams for a future with Felicia Clayton. Vindictive and nasty, Wilson went home and proceeded to author a letter to Felicia's father. In it, he disclosed their plans for the ball and made his friend look as bad as possible, including implications that Dr. Brooke was not only old, unhealthy and a bad catch for any woman, let alone the most eligible girl in town, but that he was also mentally unstable. Mr. Clayton received Wilson's letter and wrote one of his own to Dr. Brooke. Come that Christmas Eve of 1910, Dr. Brooke dressed in an expensive and elegant long purple velvet coat, an embroidered waistcoat, and fashionably long narrow trousers. He smoked a pipe and waited until the time finally came to see his dearest, when a knock came at the door with a boy delivering the letter from Mr. Clayton. In it, Clayton lied and said Felicia had accepted his invitation out of pity and that she wanted nothing to do with Brooke. The letter closed with the following. It is of utmost impropriety for a man of 50 to be indulging in romantic delusions about a girl 30 years as junior. I warn you to cease annoying my daughter and act with the dignity befitting your age and station. If you persist in trying to win her attentions, it will be of great social and professional cost to you. Following the reading of the letter, Dr. Brooke, devastated and completely distraught, died of a heart attack hours later. As he fell to the floor, he took down a clock on the mantelpiece with him. When the clock crashed to the floor, it broke and stopped at Dr. Brooke's time of death. 10:50 p.m. I guess you could say he quite literally died of a broken heart. It is said that Felicia ignored her father's commands and went to the ball to look for Dr. Brooke anyway. It seems she was quite touched by his letter. When she could not find him, she left the ball, much to the dismay of the males in attendance. Since then, it is believed that the spirit of Humphrey Brooke haunts the house on Clarence Street each Christmas Eve. There are strange rappings, an angry voice that curses and cries out from within. Many a passerby is claimed to have seen a man 
around 50 years old, dressed in Victorian-era clothing, wandering on the streets outside the house. So that was the Christmas Spectre of Clarence Street. April says, everyone is asleep here, even beans, everyone but me. Heather says that she's ready to go to sleep. Aaron says, I can't get my kids or dogs to sleep. However, my husband is fast asleep, poor guy. (laughs) Sasha says, my mom used to wait for us to go to sleep, then leave evidence that Santa was in our house. Oh my God, that is so clever. She would put out glitter, fake snow, and candies. That is really a neat idea. Hey, Tammy, how are you? Merry Christmas. And uh, Kimberly says that she was still there. She's feeding her five-month-old. Is this a new form of mother mothering to to um, bring babies up on History Goes Bump? Start them early. That's what we always say. It's always a good thing. Tammy shared in the chat room that her mom saved her from a car wreck the first Christmas after she passed away. So that is definitely a story worth hearing. Your mom is basically playing your guardian angel there. That's kind of a nice heartwarming story. We love to hear that kind of stuff. Ooh, it's starting to get a little chilly out here. You know, I wonder how many people up north are watching the live stream here and see that I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt. And it's 1030 at night. I want to thank you guys for joining us for this uh live stream that we did here for Christmas Eve. We did it last year too, but I think we only had two people join us. So it was neat to have a whole group this time. Yes. Thank you for joining us. And we just want to say Merry Christmas um, for people tomorrow. Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts tomorrow. Um, We already said to Sasha, Merry Yule and Mele Kalikimaka. So you guys have a very peaceful, whatever you happen to celebrate during these few days here. And, uh, We'll have this Christmas special up and then we'll have another show before the end of the year. And then we also are going to do a New Year's Eve special. Don't know how both we're doing back to back. We're going to have a New Year's Eve special and a New Year's Day special. So you guys are going to be spoiled at the end of the year. But we had a listener ask if we were planning on doing that and make some suggestions. So we're going to throw together. It's probably not going to be a really long one on New Year's Eve and That'll be fun. So we'll be bringing you a nice bang up for the end of the year. You guys have a great evening and uh, hopefully Santa Claus brings you everything you desire. I have a feeling that we have quite a few people in our listenership that are going to be getting coal. Some people might like coal. All right, guys. Good night. Sleep tight. All that good stuff.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.